COVID-19 has been seen as the disease of migrants. And when the threat becomes biological, it becomes something very personal, which amplifies the sentiments of xenophobia and already existing fear. There's quite a taboo against speaking out against official information, complaints and critiques and questioning of the data, questioning of the official response. There is a real clampdown on criticism and much concern that in fact, COVID-19 is being used as a pretext for narrowing political space for discussions that are critical. The virus is an indication that the end of the world is near, so just stay home, you don't need to do anything. There's no rationale for undertaking an attack that will bring you martyrdom because we're all going to die anyway. G'day. Welcome to this special edition of the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And those voices you just heard were Sydney Jones, Quinton Temby and Charlotte Satajadi speaking to us during a live podcast that we recorded on the 21st of May. And we'll be back to hear the full discussion right after this break on the National Security Podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So Indonesia is a fairly young nation, only gaining independence from multiple colonial rulers by way of revolution after the Second World War. Since then, it's experienced coup attempts, tugs of war between great powers during the Cold War, which resulted in large-scale massacres throughout the country at one stage. And it's also experienced dictatorship and the rise of democratically elected leaders who, up until the pandemic hit, were guiding the country through a period of sustained economic growth. Indonesia is also an archipelago of anywhere up to 14,000 islands, which host numerous cultures and ethnicities, which combined with such a dynamic polity makes it a very difficult nation to administer. The impact of coronavirus has only made this task more difficult with racial, economic security and political tensions rising rapidly to the surface. And that's what we're talking about on today's episode of the Natsec Pod. And just a reminder, uh, like the rest of the world, we're here in Canberra dealing with the impact of the global pandemic, and we're recording our podcasts remotely. In today's episode, our guests are speaking to us from Singapore and Indonesia, meaning that the sound quality is not what you might be used to on this podcast, but we make up for this with high-quality content instead. And we look forward to getting back into the studio in around about a month or so. But for now, let's hand over to my co-host, Catherine Manstead, to introduce our guests on this episode of the National Security Podcast. 
Now to the important bit, which is welcoming um, our three panellists today. And I, as I said before, am thrilled with the breadth and depth of expertise. So thank you very much uh, to all three of you who are um, in no particular order, Dr. Quinton Temby, a visiting fellow at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies in Singapore, the author of a forthcoming book on the rise of global jihadism in Southeast Asia, and uh, someone whose research I look to a lot on how Islamist movements are adapting to communications technology like social media, encrypted messaging, and so forth. Uh, we also uh, honored to have Sydney Jones, the director of the Institute for Policy Analysis and Conflict, who truly has had a very international career with postings in our region, but also London and New York and previous roles with the International Crisis Group, and before that, the Ford Foundation, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Um, and last but certainly not least, Dr. Charlotte Setajadi, who is an Assistant Professor of Humanities at the School of Social Sciences at the Singapore Management University, who obtained a PhD in anthropology from La Trobe here in Australia with a thesis that critically examines Chinese identity politics in post-Suharto Indonesia. Uh, so without further ado, I want to throw straight to our panel and starting off with Quinton, perhaps to ask you to offer us some framing remarks today on how broadly Indonesia is coping with the COVID-19 crisis and also how the health crisis uh, is playing out in terms of national security in Indonesia from the full, full panoply really of domestic politics through to extremism, disinformation, and of course, um, how different um, political entities and actors in Indonesia are responding um, to the COVID-19 crisis. Thanks, uh, Catherine, for the introduction, for having us, and thanks everyone for, for joining. Yeah, the current situation in Indonesia is, uh, if I could sum it up in one word, it's confusing. In terms of the caseload, with the, the infections at the moment, if, if people aren't aware of where Indonesia stands there, it's actually on the official numbers doing much better than, than many people uh, anticipated. There's about 1,200 1, people have died of COVID-19. There's around about 10,000 infections uh, on the last count. And this fits a pattern where there's, there's been much less of an infection rate and uh, indeed death rate around the region than generally, especially in places like Thailand, than we expected. But of course, the big problem is that, that no one really trusts those figures that for a number of reasons. There seems to be undercounting or um, underreporting and maybe even suppressing of, of figures because of the, the questions they might raise. So, so, the, so the big question above all of that is just how much bigger might the might the infection rate be how much more widespread might it be and, and how much higher might the might the fatality rate be than it actually is according to the official counts the big question then in terms of security really is from the from president jacobi's perspective is trying to prevent any kind of unrest that's due to the economic fallout what can be said about jacobi's response um it was very slow it's now really still marred by confusion from the top down. And what I see is, in fact, a much kind of a stricter and more stringent approach to um, things like lockdown and distancing actually coming from the bottom up from local uh, level leaders. But the big risk for Jacobi is some kind of social unrest due to the economic fallout. And that's what he's seeking to prevent. And so that's why he's, well, for a number of reasons, he's prioritised keeping the economy running over 
any kind of serious lockdown and attempt to stem the spread of coronavirus in Indonesia. Quinton, before I bring in the other panellists, just a quick follow-up there. What would you say the mood is like in the online environment in Indonesia? You mentioned that there's a lot of action happening at that local level. Is it people-driven? Is there fear and concern from the bottom up as well? Or what's happening in the online spaces? Yeah, that's that's coming from the bottom up. There's a kind of online Islamist influence sort of social media ecosystem which is particularly come to the fore in a moment like this, where there's quite a sort of taboo against speaking out against official information. And so a lot of this sort of complaints and critiques and questioning of the data, questioning of the, of the official responses being carried out online. But the problem is it, it's, it's become sort of inf- infected, I was going to say, with, with conspiracy theories, a lot of them revolving around China. And so one of the spaces to watch is, is really sort of anti-China sentiment as this um, potentially an issue that unites a number of different disgruntled sections of society. And we've already seen inklings of that happening uh, when it's come to the issue of Chinese foreign workers. And there's these certain um, uh, Belt and Road linked projects, uh, mining projects, smeltering projects in the regions in Indonesia that seem to rely on uh, Chinese foreign workers. There's, There's a sort of a sense even a sense of kind of mystery or opacity about how exactly that works and how many there are and, and so on. So that, that lack of information as well is feeding some anti-Chinese conspiracies, theories, some anxieties, and there has been some very localised unrest around that issue. Thanks, Quinton. And we'll come to that issue um, of anti-Chinese sentiment in a moment when we turn to Charlotte. Before that, though, I'd like to introduce Sydney into the conversation and ask you a slightly different uh, take on this, which is to give us an overview of how the pandemic situation is impacting the conflict in Papua and how we might uh, expect different groups, particularly the Mujahideen of Eastern Indonesia, to respond to that situation. Um, Is this in some sense for extremists a challenge or is it an opportunity? Okay, first on Papua, I would say that the three major impacts of the COVID virus in Papua is to increase distrust between central government and local government. It's clear that uh, the whole debate over the lockdown has exacerbated that distrust. Secondly, to increase a sense of victimization on the part of Papuans that uh, once again, a major disaster is having, in their view, a disproportionate impact in Papua. And the third is to worsen relations between migrants and indigenous Papuans, which is one of the major narratives in Papua that they are gradually being displaced by non-Papuans coming in from other areas of Indonesia, particularly Sulawesi. So from the beginning, COVID was seen as a migrant disease. The major motive for having a lockdown was to prevent people coming into Papua from outside by air and by sea. And there was a suspicion in Jakarta that the reason the governor wanted a lockdown, which he tried to persuade Jakarta to agree to, was because he wanted to prevent migrants coming in. And this is all 
in the context of major violence that took place in August and September 2019, and particularly an incident in the Central Highlands in Wamena, where there was a fatal clash and 30, more than 30 people were killed, most of them migrants. This is the major context in Papua. I would add that we now have about 500 cases in Papua and the majority, uh, not the majority, but the largest cluster is in Timica where the Freeport mine is, which has increased suspicions in Papua that Freeport is a carrier of all evil. But at the same time, the reasons that the numbers are so high there is because Freeport provided testing equipment. So there's been more testing in Timica than in anywhere else. And I think that's an important uh, thing to underscore. As far as the extremists are concerned, I think what we've seen is that there are basically two approaches by the pro-ISIS extremists. One is that the kafir, the infidel, is being weakened by the virus, so now is the time to attack. And the second view is the world is coming to an end anyway. The virus is an indication that the end of the world is near. So just stay home. You don't need to do anything. There's no rationale for undertaking an attack that will bring you martyrdom because we're all going to die anyway. So the only place really where we've seen attacks directly related to the idea that COVID is weakening the government and now is the time to strike is in Poso in central Sulawesi where the Mujahideen of Eastern Indonesia have mounted a few attacks against police. But you need to put this in perspective as well because MIT consists of 14 people only. It is not a major security threat to the Indonesian government, although it's very important symbolically. Thanks, Sydney. Um, I think it's interesting that one of the things we see across everywhere in the world is people trying to make sense of COVID-19 as a symbol of something to come, as of something for the future. And one, I guess, way you could interpret that is that the end of the world is near, but in Australia and all around the other places, we are looking to see what we can read in the tea leaves of COVID-19 and expecting some dramatic change or political upheaval as a result. And it's interesting to see how different groups uh, take a, maybe a positive, a negative, a neutral or a transformational approach to that endeavour. It's interesting that in a recent police manual that was published in April 2020 about how to handle the COVID virus, they listed three areas of concern. Number one was that this would lead to discrediting of the government. So going back to the issue of monitoring communications about criticism of the government and so on, interesting that that was number one. Number two are the economic issues, uh, concerns that COVID will lead to all sorts of issues about hoarding, uh, clashes about distribution over social aid and so on. And the third is social clashes that have an ethnic or religious component. I think that's a perfect point to bring Charlotte in on. It would be fascinating to hear your views on how the COVID-19 pandemic is influencing Chinese diaspora communities in Indonesia and perhaps accelerating or changing in some way what is in many respects a long-standing tension there between different ethnic groups in Indonesia. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. 
it, this is something, this is a phenomenon that we've been seeing, not just in Indonesia or even in the Southeast Asian region. We've been seeing this all over the world with the rise of uh, anti-Chinese sentiments and also increasing sentiments of xenophobia everywhere around the world. I want to echo all the you know, major keywords really that have been highlighted by my fellow panelists, Sydney and Quinton, about how you know, COVID-19 has been seen as the disease of migrants. Uh, it has been seen as sim symbolizing the threat of the foreign, the threat of the other in the community, whatever that, uh, whatever that other may be. It could be migrants, it could be at the moment in Singapore here, where I am, it exists among the migrant uh, worker population. So it symbolizes the other in society, which makes it all the more scary. If we think about it from a psychological point of view, the threat of you know migrants or uh, the others or or, or the Chinese, uh, for instance, in the case of Indonesia, in the past has been an ideological or a political uh, threat. But now with COVID-19, when the threat becomes biological, it becomes something very personal to people, which amplifies a lot of these sentiments of xenophobia and already existing fears. And also, uh, likewise, like what my other uh, panelists have already said, this disease has also come to symbolize all the other social ills that have always been just lurking underneath the surface, class relations, um, access to resources, the economy, and symbolizing also uh, the weaknesses of the government and the inability of the government to be relied upon in a crisis like this. So in terms of the um, anti-Chinese sentiments that we've been seeing in Indonesia, of course, the context being the long history, like you mentioned before, of anti-Chinese sentiments in the country, not just anti-Chinese Indonesians, but also anti-China sentiments that in recent times have come up again from time to time, particularly with Jokowi and his administration to be regarded as particularly pro-China. If we look as well at the recent history in Indonesia, particularly in 2017 with the Ahok case, uh, where the former Jakarta governor Basuki Chayapurnama or Ahok was accused and you know later on uh, convicted uh, and jailed for blasphemy against Islam that also resulted in anti-Chinese sentiments and anti-China sentiments because of the you know, conspiracy theories surrounding that. And it's no different this time. Um, when the virus first came up as the Wuhan virus coming out of China in, in January, we saw early evidence of the panic that it caused in Indonesia. Back in January, there was a backlash against a group of Chinese tourists that at that time visited the, uh, the province of um, West Sumatra. Um, the DPRD was complaining about it. Uh, people were demonstrating to the DPRD or the um, legislative uh, local legislative assembly there about the Chinese tourists being there. More recently, earlier in May this month, uh, we also saw a backlash against 500 Chinese uh, workers that came to the province of South, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Southwestern Sulawesi to work at some nickel and aluminum factories there. Um, Southeastern. Southeastern. Sorry, thanks, Sydney. Yeah, and this uh, again is you know a combination of a number of things, right? It's not just anti-Chinese sentiments, but it's also about the economy. You know, for instance, one can understand perhaps the frustration that at a time when over 300,000 uh, laborers have been laid off, and that's only from the formal sector, right? It could be twice that in the informal sector, plus you know uh, millions of workers that have been told to stay home. A lot of them low-income workers, especially coming up to the Ramadan and eat celebration at the end of the month, 
at the same time, Indonesia said that it's still committed to importing 500 Chinese workers and more Chinese workers in the future. This is the kind of stuff that also stokes anti-Chinese sentiments and fuel uh, already existing anti-Chinese sentiments. And this is also reflected, and Quinton can speak more about this, in uh, social media, particularly from the Islamist groups and those who are linked with the Islamic State. Um, and, you know, from the, you know, more radical right-wing faction of society as reflected in social media as well. So it is a genuine concern. Luckily, we've not really seen a physical manifestation about that, but uh, I agree. It, it is something to watch. I think it's an example of how the Jokowi government has frequently been tone deaf that they could bring in 500 Chinese workers in the midst of all this. It's one of many examples. Yeah, and having the uh, and having Luhut Panjaitan, one of the senior ministers of the cabinet, uh, speaking out especially about this, you know, amplifies already existing conspiracy theories uh, about him in particular, Minister Luhut being pro-China, and therefore because he's such an influential advisor to Jokowi, therefore advising him to be pro-China even at a time like this. Um, I, I agree with Sydney. It's it's tone deaf. It adds petrol to the fire, really. With the online space now, what we have is a situation where even when you have these small numbers of migrant Chinese workers, say 50 here coming in or 500 slated to come in somewhere else sort of at these remote mining locations. In the past, maybe no one would have even heard about that. Now what happens is, and it's become a pattern, is someone will notice this, some, some sort of ordinary citizen potentially, and, and just snap a video of it, whether it's accurate or not, isn't really uh, the point. And then just upload that and the opposition groups will make it go viral. There was also a concern that in the aftermath of COVID, especially after Lebaran, that a, a serious economic recession could lead to increased recruitment by radical groups. And I think it's important to underscore that where the recruitment is likely to take place is in groups like the Islamic Defenders Front, FPI, that has a big constituency in the urban poor. So not the terrorists, but the politically active hardline Islamists who have traditionally recruited from the people likely to be hardest hit. But there isn't a tradition and there hasn't been a pattern of recruitment rising as a result of economic downturns among violent extremists. The first question is um, to Sydney, picking up on the end of the world narrative ideas we were talking about before, and it's from Nava, who says the Surabaya family bombers were motivated by the end of the world narrative. Do we think that the COVID crisis could lead to apocalypse predictions that might drive extremists to change their tactics, um, committing martyrdom rather than just um, adopting tactics of wait and pray? It's possible, but we haven't of the members of violent extremist groups who've been arrested having had the motivation to undertake attacks as a precursor to the apocalypse. As I say, clearly that was a factor in Sulawesi with MIT, but we haven't seen it so much elsewhere. I think, though, that one group that it's worth, that's worth watching is Jama'a Islamiyah, which hasn't been on our radar screens for a very long time. But from the beginning, they were far more strategic than any other uh, 
terrorist group, and they could see the possibility of uh, uh, an opportunity for the Islamic revolution as a result of COVID-19. And there's, there is at least one faction of JI, the target of arrests in the last two or three weeks, that's been trying to stockpile weapons, although there's no evidence they have any particular target in mind at the moment. But more than the pro-ISIS groups and more than this coalition known as JAD that's been supportive of Islamic State, it's actually the resurgence of JI that may have a more direct link to the COVID virus and thinking about strategy in conjunction with the COVID virus than other groups. Charlotte, I might bring you back in here. Um, one thing that you said that really struck me was this idea of a pandemic as a biological threat, making a lot of political and anti-Chinese sentiment more personal. If we abstract that up to the geopolitical level, though, and to bring in a question from Greta Nabs Keller, to what extent are the trends you're talking about, or indeed the COVID-19 pandemic more broadly and some of its economic consequences, to what extent do you see that as being an agent of more substantive change in um, the Indonesian government's China policy? That's a, that's a great question. And this is something that uh, we will have to see uh, over the next few months and you know if, if, over the next few years as well. Like at the moment, I doubt that anybody's really thinking about this uh, very much, especially in Indonesia, where you know at the moment the, the government's uh, trying to play catch up really to their failures from earlier, from mitigating the, the disease earlier. I think it will impact, uh, particularly if we're just looking at it from a PR perspective, I think it'll impact how, uh, well, at least if the government is not tone deaf or, or at least if they're being more sensitive, impact how much engagement they have you know, in the immediate future regarding uh, Chinese investments in Indonesia, the, the import of Chinese uh, laborers into, in Indonesia, uh, Chinese tourists as well. Uh, at the moment, there's a movement online. I don't know, since I'm not in Indonesia, I don't know how real this is on the ground, uh, about permanently putting a ban on Chinese tourists from coming to Indonesia. This is something that is existing at the uh, social media level at the moment, but I suspect that this will have an impact uh, going forward, especially from a PR exercise, if the government is being more sensitive about this. In terms of engagement, well, we don't know uh, at an international level how long uh, travel bans are going to be for, and, and also the economic impacts, how that's going to be uh, influencing the ability of countries to engage in foreign investment, uh, etc. So just looking at it from the economic impacts post-COVID-19, uh, I think we're going to see a slowdown in foreign investments into Indonesia, particularly you know, also including from China. Uh, so I think a lot of the plans that are currently in place regarding China-Indonesia trade relations and also investment plans uh, are also going to be impacted, although the extent to it, nobody's sure about that at the moment. I think it's interesting that the tempo story on the equipment provided by China for rapid testing yes. proved to be so faulty and so flawed. And even though the Indonesian government has relied heavily on China for supplies in the context of the COVID-19 virus, information such as the faulty testing fuels some of this anti-Chinese sentiment. And if I may add as well, one of Jokowi's flagship 
campaigns to boost the rural areas, the rural economies have been to boost tourism. You know, he announced last year and the year before about creating many more Bali's across Indonesia in places like, you know, Nusa Tenggara Timur and also South Sumatra with Danau Toba and all that. And a lot of the target for this is in trying to encourage more tourism from places like China, especially China. And this is going to be affected uh, going forward, I think, uh, especially because, you know, the international situation and also domestic concerns regarding anti-Chinese tourist sentiments in these places where, um, you know, I, I go back to the case of the West Sumatra province, where in January, the Chinese tourists came to, to West Sumatra. The governor of West Sumatra himself welcomed the Chinese tourists uh, at the airport, you know, with fanfare and everything, only for a backlash to happen uh, a few days later by people who say, no, actually, we don't want these Chinese tourists in West, West Sumatra. So, you know, this is uh, another good example of, you know, the dissonance between what is planned and, and what is hoped for at the government level and also uh, the reaction from the local communities, especially at a time like this. So we might take a quick pause here to top up our coffee mugs, but we'll be back to hear more from Charlotte Setajadi, Quinton Tembi and Sydney Jones on COVID-19 in Indonesia right after this break on the National Security Podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We've mentioned, or the panelists have mentioned, a lot of ways in which grassroots um, movements of many different kinds, religious, local government and so forth, have played a big role here. And I want to bring in at this point a question from Catherine Chalk um, and perhaps throw it to Quinton first, um, which is... How do we see the coronavirus crisis impacting the civic space in Indonesia and civil society organisations more broadly? Catherine says, do you think there's a concern that there'll be a rise in internal militarisation? And I might add to that too, where, where are some of the bright spots that we in Australia could be looking to Indonesia to learn from in terms of how civil society has mobilised to respond to um, the COVID pandemic in perhaps some positive ways as well? Certainly militarisation is a problem and I'm not the first person to notice that, you know, most of the, the people in charge of handling the crisis at the top level have been uh, military men, essentially. The scientific community has been largely sidelined. And so in, in the context of this sort of top-down confusion and uh, mismanagement, some of the best initiatives seem to have come from the ground up, from communities Civil society groups organising uh, food aid, for example, there are there are food shortages, people struggling to feed themselves due to unemployment. Some people are talking about a kind of a new class of poor now. The Indonesian finance minister recently mentioned that this crisis has wiped out the last decade of poverty eradication, taking Indonesia back 10 years. And so... Yeah, one of the themes of the crisis in Indonesia, which mirrors uh, themes elsewhere in the world, I think, is that the, the local community has been where people have turned. And for, for food support, for even for issues like arranging quarantine for 
people traveling to, to prevent cross-contamination. A lot of that's been mishandled by the central government. There's actually in certain places and certain villages and certain districts being managed quite well by, by local um, authorities and, and local civilians. But I think it's important to note as well that there's real concern in civil society about the closing down of political space, especially for expression, partly because of this focus on you can't discredit the government at the time of a crisis, meaning that there is a real clampdown on criticism and uh, much concern in the journalist community and in other parts of civil society that in fact, COVID-19 is being used as a pretext for narrowing political space for discussions that are critical. I might widen this out then to a question a number of people have asked now, including Ronald Romana and Malcolm Cook. Thank you for your questions, which is given we're seeing some pretty severe economic consequences and health consequences as well, is there any sign that um, COVID-19 or Indonesia's response to it is affecting popular views of President Jokowi? And indeed, should we be expecting to see an increase in general disgruntlement towards the government there and where might that lead? It's very interesting. I'll be interested to hear the reactions of my fellow panellists because I get the sense that Jokowi, despite the fact that he's come in for a lot of criticism, despite the fact that he seems to lack a strategy, and despite the flip-flops, is kind of a Teflon president in that as the real nitty-gritty of a response shifts to local areas, so with bupatis and with governors having to make the really hard decisions, Jokowi seems to not be so targeted for criticism, even though it's actually his own confusion over policy that's led to some of this policy flip-flopping. I don't know whether you agree. Yeah, I agree with you. Jokowi will will always have these core supporters, I think, and and those core supporters have been quite uh, defensive of him as well, saying that, you know, a range of defenses for him, right, that that he's doing his best, you know, compared to other countries around the world, actually, uh, Jokowi is doing not bad. Uh, At the moment, uh, I hear a lot that, look, even Singapore is struggling with this, so Jokowi is, is doing well. There are also a lot of blame, I think, on his ministers, particularly the health minister, Minister Trawan, who has quite across the board been regarded as incompetent in, in dealing with this. You know, it'll be interesting to see uh, survey results about his popularity after the COVID pandemic. But so far, he's been doing okay. But, um, you know, even just ju- judging from his social media postings, to me, still displaying, you know, classic Jokowi behavior of also trying to distract attention from the handling of uh, COVID-19 to um, other of the usual PR tactics that you know, his team uses for him, like displaying uh, cartoons of him with his grandson, all these things. People are tired of this um, and, and hoping that he would do something more decisive. I think one political winner out of all this, and I don't know whether Sydney and uh, Quinton agree with this, and, and it has been analyzed quite a fair amount as well, is figures like, you know, local leaders like Anis Baswedan, uh, who has been dubbed as the Andrew Cuomo of, uh, of Indonesia, you know, this local 
leader trying his best to stop the spread of COVID-19 or at least flattening the curve, but has been hampered by uh, red tape, bureaucracy and incompetence at the national level. So I think we're also seeing local leaders trying to set themselves apart from Jokowi's national leadership. And I think that'll be interesting, uh, particularly in the lead up to 2024, uh, whether they're handling, you know, the handling of, you know, people like uh, Anis Baswedan, Ridwan Kamil uh, from West Java, the East Java governor, Rizma, um, and, and how this will impact their popularity leading up to 2024 if they have those aspirations. But I think we've got a more immediate issue, which is whether Muslims will be permitted to attend prayers for Lebaran or Eid al-Fitri after the end of the fasting month, which is only four days away, right? And there's been this uh, give and take about whether the social distancing regulations will stay in place or whether they will be lifted. And some of these same governors and local officials who have been resisting government or who have been protesting government inaction are now responding to local pressure to open up so that people can gather for the Eid festival as they have in the past. So it's as though the local to political pressure on the ground. And even though you have Anis having taken a very strong stand, Ridwan Kamil having taken a very strong stand in West Java, it's Ridwan Kamil now who's saying maybe we should ease the regulations. There's really a patchwork of responses, isn't there? The worst case scenario is, I think, that the Itofitri is a, is a kind of the second big religious event during the pandemic era, as it's sometimes been called in Indonesia, after Chinese New Year that just really accelerates the spread because it involves high sociality, high mobility, um, lots of people engaging in mass gatherings. And we're learning more and more about the importance of these super spreader events to how this virus is spread around the world, which Sydney has recently written about. So that's that's the worst case scenario. And so what we're seeing is, I think, politicians don't want to get on the wrong side of this issue. And so they're just hedging. So you're getting a kind of patchwork um, where some authorities are saying uh, you can have congregational prayers for Eid, some are saying you can't. The Religious Scholars Council is not so bold as to actually prohibit it. So I think it's just going to be you know everyone to themselves. If I may add, like about the importance uh, of Ramadan and also you know Mudik. Mudik has been a huge controversy, right? To our listeners who are not so familiar with what Mudik is, uh, is the annual going home pilgrimage essentially to celebrate, uh, particularly with Indonesia's urbanization. Millions every year would go home to their homelands from the big cities like Indonesia, Jakarta, Bandung, Surabaya to spend uh, Lebaran or uh, Idul Fitri with their families. And you know this year uh, the government has been flip flopping about this? Can they go to Mudik? Can, can they not go to Mudik? And this is upsetting for a lot of people, right? Because obviously, well, people want to want to go Mudik. It's important to acknowledge that this is not just about religion itself, right? Like this is also an important part of 
uh, kinship ties, social ties, economic ties, uh, where uh, for millions of people, where whenever they go home to their kampungs, their rural areas, they would bring gifts, they would bring money that would also replenish the local economies uh, back home as well, right? So that tie has been severed for those who, who are not able to go home. And we see people desperate to go mudik. Uh, there's a booming business now for human trafficking, uh, for uh, trafficking people who want to go to mudik, but they but they can't uh, on the backs of trucks and, and, and all that, which is dangerous, but people do it. So people are angry that they can't, they can't do this. So there are multiple layers here, but I think if we can, if we can sort of essentialize why people are angry uh, about this, well, you know, distrust in the government, which my panelists has, has spoken about, economic disadvantage of not being able to help their families, and also frustration uh, about, you know, the flip-flopping from the government. And I know uh, one of our listeners spoke about, you know, this current phenomenon of Indonesia terserah, right? It, it, I don't know how to translate that. It's like, you know, whatever Indonesia, do whatever you want kind of thing. Uh, you know, this, this kind of uh, shows the frustration among people who do take COVID-19 seriously. But at the same time, uh, so many Indonesians either don't take it seriously but, or they don't know what to take seriously, resulting in uh, different inconsistencies in, in how people deal with this. Uh, so now um, you have all these um, doctors and all these like government officials saying, you know what, do whatever you want. Uh, you know, we give up. So it's it's. But you know, the, the the amazing thing is is that something like seventy percent of the population still thinks that the government's doing a good job in handling COVID nineteen. I agree. I agree with your comment about Jacoby. There's something kind of of the blank slate about him. He sort of plays a, a dead bat to a lot of issues. And so you can sort of project onto him what you want to see. But I, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the US situation, not in that Jokowi is anything like Trump, but in, but in that a lot depends on the opposition. And so I think if you had an opposition uh, and a really effective opposition coalescing around, say, Arnis, the uh, I think a lot does come down to Anis and the governor of Jakarta. The country is polarized. Those opposition groups do, you know, and the opposition community does have a strong critique of Jokowi. And if it came together on a platform of, of sort of anti-corruption, pro-Islam, anti-repression, anti-China, I think that would be very effective against Jokowi. I might bring another question or two questions in at once now. I've got two actually directed towards Sydney. And the first is as we were just talking about issues of trust in government there, this one seems to be linked to from um, Ronald Romana, which says, in terms of Papua, how will, in your view, the handling of COVID-19 and social aid provided by the Indonesian government perhaps impact or affect the trust of Indigenous Papuans um, back towards uh, the government? And if I can... Uh, throw another one your way, Sydney, on a slightly different tack as well. Uh, this from Sylvia Luxmi, who's a PhD student at the National Security College, which is how do you see extremist groups coping with the lack of resources uh, that COVID-19 has thrown their way? Um, have you seen them increase their fundraising activities through new and different ways? Or perhaps are they using COVID-19 as a cover to source donations? Uh, let me start with the second one first. I think that one traditional method of extremists raising money has been to take advantage of disasters and use that 
to make appeals for aid, which is then diverted into extremist activities. And now is no different from that. So yes, we are seeing appeals being made. It's worth noting that the recruiting for MIT in Sulawesi really began and helped rebuild the organization after the Palu tsunami in 2018, when there was a lot of appeals being made in the name of humanitarian assistance, which was then used to try and recruit volunteers who then went to POSO and became combatants. So I think that is one thing to watch. And I think it puts an extra burden on the government to show that they can deliver aid more quickly and more efficiently than some of the extremist groups. It's actually usually the more non-terrorist Islamist groups that are good at getting aid out to disaster areas or areas hit hard by COVID faster than the government can do it. So that'll be a trade-off. In terms of the distrust in Papua, you know, it's almost gotten to the point where the suspicions are so deep and so ingrained that it's hard to see that any measure could really change the situation as long as political or historical questions aren't addressed. So one of the characteristics of every government since Suharto fell has been this idea that economic development will solve Papua's problems and that if you just pour money into the area, the problem will go away. That was also the mistake they made in East Timor that if you pour money into the area, sooner or later, that will address the political problem. And it never does. So I'm not sure that we will see any impact in terms of distrust levels coming from additional aid, even if it's efficiently delivered. Thanks for that, Sydney. We have time for two more questions. One I'll direct towards Quinton and then the final ones for for everyone. And this, this second last one, Quinton, is we've spoken a lot about online conspiracy theories, uh, the use of the online tools for radicalisation and spreading hate and so forth. And um, I wonder the extent to which the online environment in Indonesia is also porous to some of the international conspiracy theories we're seeing or um, pushes by groups from you know anti-vaxxers through to broader anti-China groups or indeed any kind of international group. Um, I ask that question because there's polling that came out in Australia earlier this week which for whether you think of the ability of polls to capture the zeitgeist, suggests that one in eight Australians, and particularly young Australians, believe one form or another of a COVID conspiracy, um, from claims that Bill Gates created the virus through to some pretty interesting ways to treat the virus. So is Indonesia part of that international ecosystem too, or, or are most of the uncertainty and informational pollution in Indonesia of a local source? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, which I've been trying to track. And I have been really worried about, you know, seeing a lot of conspiracy theories, anti-vaccination conspiracy theories, but most of them I'm getting from my um, contacts in Australia. So uh, I haven't been seeing much of that kind of conspiracy in Indonesia for a number of, of reasons, but you're seeing other ones that reflect international trends. So one of the ones that really took off in January was the notion that coronavirus was a biological weapon. And so I've tracked that, been tracking that through, and that's sort of steadily risen across time in response to 
Um, for example, that that was that idea first I could find was floated by Steve Bannon, the f- former chief White House advisor, Spengali to Trump, and people in his circle of China hawks in DC. When that was floated, that very quickly went through Indonesian networks and even was picked up by the mainstream media. And then, of course, there's aspects of that that have actually even been picked up by um, the White House itself when starting to talk about labs being involved in the origin story of coronavirus. So that's certainly a narrative. I haven't seen it lead to any, any changes on the ground. It's just out there, as you suggest, polluting the informational environment, making it still harder to figure out what the best advice is and what's going on. And yeah, the second one I think that's maybe gathering steam now is this complicated conspiracy theory involving Bill Gates. And Bill Gates is actually, uh, I think it's the Eichmann Institute, which is this sort of quasi-governmental peak um, epidemiology research institute in Jakarta that's seeking to partner with Bill Gates. And um, I think it's Sinovac, a Chinese company, to produce a, a local Indonesian vaccine. So of course, there's kernels of truth like that that can be ammunition for conspiracy theorists. Thanks, Quinton. That brings us to our very last question, which is broad in scope um, for everyone. And that is, it's a double barrel coming from an amalgamation of a couple of questions, including one from Marsha, which is, how do we see these short-term impacts um, on Indonesia's security playing out longer term? In particular, one for Indonesia's place in the Indo-Pacific and its relative power to other players in the region, and two, um, for Australia, uh, what could be some of the flow-on effects of the uh, situation in Indonesia? And I'd also frame that backwards, the situation in Australia, how could that affect Indonesia? And and how do we need to be thinking and planning for both of those uh, potential longer-term changes? It's a little bit difficult to think about that at the moment because all you know, all countries around the world are not talking about things at an international or regional or global scale. Everybody's, um, what we're seeing throughout this whole COVID-19 pandemic around the world has been, and, and you know, understandably, uh, countries being uh, more isolated from one another, countries focusing on domestic issues rather than thinking about things in an interna- from an international perspective. And heightened paranoia about the opening of borders of any kind, right? Opening of borders to migrants, opening of borders to um, tourists, to international students, to investments. And I think that's going to take a while to recover, at least from at least from a mental uh, and psychological perspective about, you know, opening that line of trust again. Uh, And especially perhaps if we think about uh, relationship between Indonesia and Australia, uh, how quickly, um, you know, tourism relationship can open again. I I think it'll take a while, you know, at least until next year uh, before, you know, if things go well, before Australians start coming to Indonesia and particularly to Bali again, um, the Balinese economy has been suffering greatly from the loss of of tourists, not just Australian tourists, but tourists in general. Also, I'm thinking about the potential effects in terms of Indonesian students studying in Australia and a lot of Indonesian students study as international students in Australia. So that relationship uh, is going to be impacted, especially as uh, the Indonesian economy suffers from the fallout of this pandemic. And in terms of international corporations, 
it's hard to imagine at the moment. Uh, one would hope that it would increase greater cooperation, especially in terms of aid, uh, in terms of uh, cooperation um, for mitigation efforts, and also perhaps in the in the search for uh, a vaccine. Uh, particularly, we think about it because Indonesia is so close to Australia. Whatever is going on in Indonesia, and and, and if there's like a large scale uh, outbreak, um, even more in Indonesia, that's inevitably going to affect Australia's security as well. Uh, so one would hope eventually um, it will lead to greater cooperation. But I think in the in the in the interim or in the in the near future, I think we're going to see that trust needs to be rebuilt again, especially, you know, as countries become more uh, more xenophobic and also more more distrustful of one another. Thanks, Charlotte. I might get Sydney to jump in with the, the next comment on that one. Yeah, I just think that it's true that cooperation has taken a blow. And one example to look at is just all of these people from the Jamaat Tablik movement. We call them Tablikis or Tablika Jamaat, which has become the single largest super spreader in Indonesia, but also the single largest super spreader in, in India and in Malaysia. So you would think that there would be an effort to try and increase a kind of interregional council that could map some of the potential for spreading when you're dealing with regional movements or international movements that have a potential to affect things at home. But the fact is the whole process of identifying nationals from Indonesia in those countries and making efforts at repatriation when there were high levels of suspicion in the community more generally has meant that it's actually harder to cooperate than it would be otherwise, even when you have a very strong rationale for doing so. So I agree that the issue of closed borders, the issue of repatriation of migrants, the issue of repatriation of, in this case, members of a Muslim missionary movement and so on, has all complicated things. It hasn't facilitated cooperation. I also think in terms of security, one of the things that Australia will certainly be watching as well the rest of the region is whether the economic downturn leads to any kind of riots in the streets in Indonesia, because everybody has 1998 in the back of their minds. I think the situation is very, very different now. But the question is, is there anything in the future that could lead to political instability in Indonesia directly resulting from COVID? I think the answer is certainly not to the same extent as 1998 because the situation is so different. But Indonesia is by definition almost unpredictable. The issue of refugees, asylum seekers has been a long-standing issue uh, between Indonesia and, and Australia. And, you know, these refugees and asylum seekers, many of those who are still stranded in Indonesia at the moment, recent report says like about 8,200 at the moment are stranded in uh, various uh, refugee housing and refugee shelters. And, and these are the ones that are known by IOM alone. Um, you stranded in Indonesia. And, you know, during a pandemic like this and in the aftermath, particularly with closed borders. Um, this is something that will, you know, uh, 
that that continues to be unresolved. Um, and I don't see uh, cooperation between Indonesia and Australia resuming anytime soon, particularly for this very marginal group that at the moment uh, has, has no cover, no security uh, in places um, in rural Indonesia. So thanks, Charlotte. That's a really important point. Quinton, I'll give you the floor last on the question of the future prospects. Sure, just on, on the on the Indonesia's geopolitical context, I'd, I'd like to float in an alternative scenario, which is that I think you can see that, that there's a lot of incentives aligning so that just as, for example, Australia has come out and looking to, to a kind of a trans-Tasman bubble and closer integration with New Zealand and, and then encompassing the Pacific and, and leaning that way, I think it's possible that, that Indonesia aligns the other way with China in this and, and that and this is in fact the net win for China and it's one of the th- things about this topic it's hard to to really get a sense of because it would be a you know it's a sensitive issue in Indonesia to try to map but Indonesia and China have a sort of similar infection uh, rate problem uh, yet they're both looking to open up their economies I think China's already talked about opening up travel to Bali and Chinese tourists in fact had become the largest cohort of tourists in Bali before the lockdown. And so you've got a situation in which Indonesia's opening up and it's just much more reliant on a country like China that's able to provide liquidity, that's able to maybe even um, secure medical supply chains, which, which the Indonesian government is worried about. That's the alternative scenario that I think it's worth thinking about, especially because for some reason, China always seems to, progress always seems to kind of run ahead of public perceptions by a number of years there's some kind of time lag involved so you know indonesia's been sort of leaning towards china under jokowi for a few years now become indonesia's largest investor in that time and so all the incentives are aligned for indonesia to move closer to china Thanks so much for that, Quinton. I know we're approaching or we've exceeded our time limit, but I do just want to wrap up um, briefly. Firstly, of course, by thanking the panellists for incredibly generous conversation um, and then noting that this is a national security podcast. If you want to re-listen to it, you can, but also if there are questions we didn't get to or observations you want to make, please um, at them to us on Twitter, at NatSecPod. And I also wanted to just give some of my reflections very briefly on the key take-homes of um, today's conversation, four things that really stood out for me. The first is the notion of um, President Jokowi as a Teflon um, president. I think that is fantastic. The second one, a bit more seriously, is on this notion that as we see cooperation backsliding around the world and borders closing physically and metaphorically, um, It's also the case, as Charlotte said, that no um, country is an island, even though Australia and Indonesia are clearly islands. But metaphorically, we are not islands. We are very close together. And whatever happens to our nearest uh, neighbour will very much impact Australia. And that's something we will be thinking about in the coming months ahead, I'm sure. Um, The third thing is the way in which crises get mapped onto our existing prejudices and existing concerns. We tend to make of a crisis, uh, whatever we want to make of it based on our political beliefs and values and biases. And so in that sense, again, Charlotte, your idea of of saying that um, COVID-19 has become a migrant's disease um, is perhaps one way to characterise the pandemic, but of course stems from things that were uh, long pre-existing. And then the final thing, I guess, Sydney, is is your comment that Indonesia is unpredictable, um, which maybe for some looking for futures foresight and analysis is scary. 
but I also, also think it points up the opportunity here um, for uh, actors to take agency over this future and also points to us as participants in this webinar um, how grateful we are for the expertise of people uh, like all of you to help us navigate this uncertainty and continue to understand and continue to update our, um, uh, I guess, analysis of the situation in Indonesia. So once again, um, in ending, thank you very much. I know you've been very generous with your time and it's extraordinary to have such a breadth of uh, expertise and from very different geographic locations as well on this online forum. So thank you. That's a wrap for this podcast and we look forward to um, talking to you all again soon. And thanks all. Thanks, thank Captain. Thanks Bye. for having us. Thank you. Bye. And a big thanks to Quinton Temby, Sydney Jones and Charlotte Satajadi for talking to us today on the national security implications for Indonesia from the coronavirus pandemic. And thank you as well to my co-host Catherine Manstead for her silky smooth facilitation of that discussion. Hit us up on Twitter using Apps Policy Forum or at NatSecPod, just as Miss Jack X and Kate Sinatra did last week. If you have any comments or feedback, you can also join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can go old school and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. So thanks very much for listening to today's episode. And just as a reminder, as our cities and communities are starting to open back up after getting a hold of the spread of infections, now is the time to remain super vigilant, keeping up the social distancing, continuing to wash your hands, wearing a mask if you're in a high-risk area, and keeping a lookout for those that will continue to need support from the community around them. I don't know about you folk, but I'm not a big fan of having to scuttle back into my house for another couple of months because we didn't manage the downward slope of this thing properly. So stay safe, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.